If you have your Bible, turn in those, open those to the Gospel of John. That's where we will be today. We are returning to the Gospel of John after a five-week hiatus. And um, today's story is one that is very familiar. Many of us have heard the story of Lazarus raising from the dead. But today's story is one that is very misunderstood. Today we re-enter the story of the Gospel of John. Today's story is a familiar one. It's the story of Lazarus raising from the dead. But ironically, the principle of this story has nothing to do with Lazarus himself. Because when you step into any passage of the scripture, what are you really, what are you trying to get at? You're trying to understand the author's original intent. And the question I have, really the question that this passage answers is, why does Lazarus die? Why does he actually pass away from the sickness? Why does Jesus allow him to die? And the question and the answer is found in verse 4. Today our passage is uh, very long. It's much longer than I normally uh, share on and read. I think it's probably the longest pericope that I've ever touched on on a Sunday morning. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read kind of segments of the story. And the segments that I'm going to read are found on your note sheet that are placed out there in back of the sanctuary. I'll begin the story of John 11 in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 12. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that it was speaking of his literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Skip down to verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if, he, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will certainly give it to you. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Son of God, and even he who comes into the world. Notice verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Verse 32, Therefore when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my son would not have died. And then I will skip on to verse 38 in the culmination of this story. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. 
And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, probably confused, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his hands and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Amen. Uh, Today I titled my sermon, Gaining a New Perspective on Trials. Gaining a New Perspective on Trials. Over the last year or so, we have slowly been working our way through the Gospel of John, and slowly the anticipation, the energy, the culmination is arriving. So where are we when we come to John, when we come into John chapter 11? If you know the outline, if you've been here for any length of time, then you've probably heard this outline once or twice or three dozen times. Sorry, but I'm, that's the, you know, what, repetition is theological glue, is what my father-in-law says. It'll just stick in your brain a little bit better. The chronological, outline for the Gospel of John is really three parts. You have John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is eternity past, that in the beginning was, that at the beginning of time already existed God, the Word, Jesus Christ. And then you have three years from John chapter 1 verses 19 through the end of John chapter 12. And then you have three weeks from John chapter 13 to the end of the book. So when we come into John chapter 11, where are we? That Jesus is in his final days on walking on this earth. That very soon he will be tried, he will be crucified, and praise the Lord, he will rise again here in just a few days. But as I was um, in the hospital, you know, with my baby, sleep deprived, and with my wife, and as I've been kind of thinking about the Gospel of John, a new outline kind of came into my mind, one that's a little simpler. You really have, you could break down the Gospel of John into two parts as well. You have John 1 through 11. That is the proof of the Christ. And then you have John 12 through the end of the book, the presentation of the Christ. So when we come into John chapter 11, Jesus has only a few more days, maybe even a week or so, to live before he is crucified and he rises again. But as mentioned before, uh, what is the one conclusion, what is the one purpose of the Gospel of John? That all of the verses, all of the words, all of the stories, all of the miracles point towards one conclusion. And what is that? I'm hearing it. John chapter 20, verse 31. If you do not have that verse highlighted, uh, marked, memorized, put it in there. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have life in His name. That all of the stories, all of the verses, everything that's put in the Gospel of John is pointing towards that one conclusion. So the story of Nicodemus, the story of the woman at the well, you, uh, Jesus turning a happy meal and defeating 20,000 people, him calming the seas, walking on the water, the discourse is 7, 8, 9, and 10, all of it is pointing towards that one conclusion, that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you haven't heard that once before, well, or a thousand times, there you go. But today, Jesus, in a sense, uh, seals the deal. 
If any of the readers of the Gospel of John to this point have been confused, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God, that Jesus today seals the deal, so to speak. Because today, Jesus performs the greatest miracle of his entire ministry. Jesus proves once and for all, before the presentation of the Messiah, Jesus proves once for all that he is truly God by raising Lazarus from the dead. But the question I have this morning is a little bit different. The question is why? Why does Jesus allow Lazarus to die in the first place? If you think about it, we love that question, why. We love the question, why. Uh, Thursday night of this week, I was lying in bed with my four-year-old daughter, trying to get her to go to bed, if any parents in the room can probably relate to that torment. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, please just go to bed. It's, it's like really late. I'm, I'm exhausted. Just please close your eyes. Okay. So, I'm sitting there lying in bed. I love my children, uh, but I'm trying to get her to... Close her eyes and fall asleep, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking that my four-year-old is asleep, and she rolls over, and she asks me, Daddy, why does food make our breath stink? (laughs) I didn't really have a good answer. Perhaps you can tell me the answer to that one. I just kind of laughed and whatever. But we love to ask the question, why? So, so this week what I did was I went on Google and I looked up all of the most common questions of why. And here are some of them. Why is there leak day? Why is the sky blue? Why are cats afraid of cucumbers? Is that true? Uh, torment your cat when you get home. Okay. Why do dogs eat grass? Thought of that one. Why do cats purr? One of them is why did I get married? Why do we yawn? Why am I always so tired? We love the question of why. If you think about life, we ask why all the time. You know, why is the president doing this? And why is COVID so polarizing? Or why am I poor or depressed? The questions of why are endless. But there's another area that we ask why. If you think about your life, we ask why of the Lord all of the time. Especially when we suffer especially when we go through a trial or difficulty, what are the two words that we always say whenever we encounter a trial in life? We ask the question, why, Lord? Let me ask you a question. I hope you can answer by raising your hand. How many of you have ever suffered before? Yeah. If you haven't suffered, then your turn is coming, all right? It is just a guarantee of life that we live in a broken and dark world and that suffering is part of it. But every time we suffer, we ask the Lord, why? You know, why, Lord, did you allow me to get sick? Why, Lord, did you allow this person to die? Why did I... Why is my marriage falling apart, Lord, why? And today, that is kind of the question at the heart of John 11. And our passage today answers the question, why? Why does Jesus allow the trial and difficulty and death of Lazarus? We often just look at the miracle itself as as a proof that Jesus is the Son of God, and it is. But there's a deeper-rooted question here of why Jesus allows Lazarus to die to begin with. And the answer to the question is found in verse 4. 
So if you have your Bible, turn in those. John chapter 11. We'll begin in reading verses 1 through 6 here in just a moment. But as we unpack this uh, passage, there are two different tensions that are kind of uh, weaving its way through the fabric of this text. You see the glory of God, which is mentioned in verse 4, but then we also see alongside that Jesus' desire to call his disciples and followers into a deeper faith and relationship to him. These two tensions, these themes run throughout this narrative. Notice John 11 verse 1. This is the setting of our story. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice that phrase. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that, henna, the Greek word, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So what is the setting for the story that we come to in John chapter 11? Well, number one, it says that Lazarus was sick. We don't really know how long he was sick at this point in time. We don't know what his disease or illness was. But it all says that Lazarus was sick. Number two, that it says that Lazarus lived in a town called Bethlehem. The word town is probably a bit misleading. This is probably more of a village. Okay, a couple of uh, shacks in a little town called uh, Bethany. And Bethany is a, a town that is on the slope of the Mount of Olives, just east of the Mount of Olives. And it's two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. Number three, it says Mary and Martha were Lazarus' sisters. Remember the story in Luke chapter 10. Mary is the one that anointed Jesus' feet with with the ointment, and Martha is busy in the kitchen, if you remember that story. And number four, it says that Jesus was away. But where? Where is Jesus when we come into John chapter 11? If you go back to the end of John chapter 10, Jesus is east of the Jordan River. He is some at least 20 miles away from the town of Bethany to the east. Number six, if you notice verse six again, I want you to notice what Jesus does when he hears the news of Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he, Jesus then stayed two more days in the place where he was. In the original language, the word so is therefore as. So therefore as Jesus heard the news, he intentionally stayed east of the Jordan River. Why? And then if you notice verse 3 again, number 6, detail for the setting, it says, So then his sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one in whom you love is sick. What does that phrase alone reveal of his relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha? That they have a very close relationship, that Jesus loves Lazarus and loves his family. But what does Jesus allow Lazarus to do? Jesus stays east of the Jordan River for two more days, allowing Lazarus to die. So he allows the trial of Lazarus to Mary and Martha, even though he truly loves Lazarus and the family. Jesus allows that family to suffer, even though he knows them and loves them very well. 
You know, if you think about it, Jesus is the Son of God. If he has proven, he's proven many things to this point, but one of the things he has proven is that he is God incarnate, that he is I, I am, ego, Amy, that he is Yahweh, Jehovah. So Jesus is east of the Jordan River, and Bethany is 20 miles away. From that distance alone, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and healed Lazarus. He could have prevented the sickness altogether. He could have raised Lazarus from the dead from east of the Jordan River, but instead, Jesus allows Lazarus to die and the family to suffer that trial. My question is why? Why does Jesus, why does the Lord allow Lazarus to die? Notice verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. If you notice in verse 4, it has those two words, so that. I've already mentioned this word. That is the Greek conjunction, henna, which means for purpose or result. So let me rephrase verse 4 again. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, for the purpose that the Son of God may be glorified in it. From verse 4 alone, we realize that really John 11 is not the story of Lazarus, but it is a story that exemplifies the glory of God. That is the purpose of John 11. That is what it says. If the, if the goal of interpreting the scriptures understand the author's original intent, then the purpose of this story in John 11 is that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Two of the most uh, prevalent themes in the scripture, number one is the theme of redemption, going back to Genesis chapter 3. And number two is the theme of the glory of God. And these two themes are as a thread through the fabric of scripture. The Bible states that there are three, at least three manifestations of the glory of God. Number one is the glory of God is seen in nature. What does it say in Psalm 19 verse 1? It says this, that the heavens are telling of the glory of the Lord and the expanse is clearing the work of His hands. The glory of God is seen in nature, but the glory of God is seen in Christ Himself. What does it say in John chapter 1 verse 14? And the word Jesus the Christ became flesh and lived among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The glory of God is seen in nature in the person and person of Christ Jesus and also is seen in the redemption of mankind. I'm going somewhere with this expose of the glory of God. Trust me. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For it was fitting for him from who, whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So it says in verse 4 that this story is for the glory of God. So the question we have to ask is, how is Jesus glorified in this story? It's seen in all three. That Jesus' power over nature, that he can raise somebody who was dead to life. That Jesus, the very Shekinah glory of God on earth. And number three, that the redemption of mankind. Notice the theme that is going alongside this story of the glory of God. We see the word belief mentioned several times in this text. So the glory of God is exemplified in this passage in the character of Christ, in his control over nature, and number three, in his redemption of the world and mankind. 
And herein lies why Lazarus died, is to exemplify and to show the glory of God. But what's attached to that? You know, sometimes if we are open and honest, we kind of just dismiss the emotional side of stories of the Bible instead of actually really entering the story. Because we know the, the conclusion, we know that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead, we know that, so we kind of disconnect emotionally. But how do you think, when Jesus shows up in John chapter 11, how do you think Mary and Martha are feeling? I would imagine they're grieved that their brother is dead. And Jesus allows this man named Lazarus to die to exemplify his own glory. In trials, God is glorified. If you have your notes, that is kind of the first blank. In trials, God is glorified. But uh, this week, as I was kind of mulling over verse 4 in the trials of Mary and Martha and the death of their brother, you know, it seems to me kind of, uh, we would say, messed up. That God would be glorified in a difficult situation. And th- this makes it seem like God is a, a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. And when you experience trials, when you experience difficulty, it can feel that way at times. That there is a difficult tension that we see here in this passage and we see in life. It is the tension of Job that my experience at times tells me, my experience tells me that God is not a loving God. But then the truth of the scripture on the other side tells me that he is. If you've ever suffered and experienced difficulty, then you understand that tension. That my experience tells me that God is not really loving, but the truth of the scripture tells me something else. If you have ever walked in the shoes of Mary and Martha, then you know what I'm talking about. That my experience tells me one thing, but the truth of the scriptures tell me another But why is God glorified in our trials? That is kind of the central idea. But I'm going to pause on that for just a moment. I'm going to kind of take take you on a side railroad train real quick, and I'm going to kind of talk about something real quick. I want to kind of define something with you all. I want to define what a trial actually is. Because there's a, there is a false uh, assumption in our culture that there is there's, there's a difference between a trial and a consequence of sin. Okay? So there's a difference between a trial and a consequence of sin. And we live, if you think about it, we live in an era of uh, narcissism. Okay? And yes, I did say that. We live in an era of narcissism and where people, you know, go online and vomit all of their problems on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and they vomit all of their problems, all of their trials onto people in their life. And I look at that, and I oftentimes, 95% of the trials that people face are not trials, but really a consequence to sin. You know, people go online and complain about being broke, right? But then they have a brand new Cadillac sitting in the driveway. What? Okay, people, you know, complain about uh, the difficulty of losing weight, but then they ate a dozen donuts that morning, right? So that, that's not, those aren't trials, those are consequence of sin, and often our trials are not trials, but rather a consequence, so then the question is, what is a trial? The dictionary defines a trial as a test of the performance, qualities, and suitability of someone or something. What? 
A spiritual trial is something that tests our faith, that deepens it, that strengthens it. If I could put it in a sense, a trial is a spiritual test for a spiritual purpose. The story of Lazarus dying is a trial. It is a spiritual test for a spiritual purpose. It is a spiritual test for Mary, Martha, his disciples, and those that are there weeping with him. For a spiritual purpose, will they truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they may have life in his name? That is the central idea and trial at hand. And verse 4 here clearly says that the reason Lazarus has died is because it is meant to exemplify the glory of God. And in, so in trials, God is glorified. But why? Notice verse 14 and 15. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. What kind of belief is that? Who is he talking to? In trials, God is glorified, calling me to a deeper faith. That when the Lord places upon your lap a difficulty that you did not ask for, that is not a consequence of sin, when the Lord gives you that, he is calling you potentially to a deeper faith. The glory of God is exemplified in trials because trials often reveal the very power of God, which then calls us to a deeper faith. God does not reveal his glory often by hurling a star across the universe or by parting a Red Sea. But here in verse 14 in the rest of the passage, God reveals his glory often through the redemption and restoration of men. God's glory is seen by raising the dead to life. But I want you to notice who is Jesus talking to in verse 12. I want you, I want you to notice... Who believes in him? So you may believe in him. Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, guys. Come on. <laughs> I would just be slapping people right now. It would just be exhausting being Jesus, okay, knowing everything. Verse 15, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Who is verse 15 spoken to? It says that you may believe, but who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. What have the disciples already done? To this point, over and over again, it says that the disciples have believed in him. And here Jesus says for them to believe in him as well. So what is Jesus really asking them to do? What I believe is this, is that Jesus is using the trial of Lazarus and Mary and Martha to draw the disciples into a deeper faith. Jesus is not calling them to an initial faith, but here to a deeper faith. If you have not filled it out yet, point number one is this. In trials, God is glorified, calling us to a deeper faith. We, uh, we have this false idea running around our minds, especially in evangelical circles, that we think that faith is only necessary for salvation. But faith is also necessary for sanctification. Faith is necessary for both salvation and to, for sanctification and to grow. That if you're a Christian, if you're walking through trials and difficulties, perhaps the Lord is testing you for a spiritual purpose. 
Perhaps the Lord is trying to draw your faith deeper into knowing who He is in His character. I believe Jesus is drawing in the disciples to push past their perception of who the Messiah in their mind is. And he's trying to get them to see Jesus on who he truly is on a deeper level. If you're going through a difficult time, maybe the Lord is calling you to know him on a more intimate level, on a more intimate basis. Faith in trials is meant to cause us to grow. What does it say in James chapter 2? Excuse me, James chapter 1 says, Consider all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials cause us to truly grow in our faith. And if we're honest, we don't, we don't, we often do not grow spiritually on the mountaintops, but we grow in the valleys. Because in the dark valleys of life, that is where we must trust the Lord the most. When we don't understand the path that he has for us, the forest through the trees, that is where we typically grow. You know, I think about my own life. I think about the history of my spiritual walk and the trials that I have lived are the times that I grow the most. If you are here today, I want you to gain a new perspective on difficulty. If you're walking a difficult road, then maybe the Lord is calling you to a deeper faith in Him. But there's something else going on here as well. Jesus calls His disciples to a deeper faith, but then notice what He calls Martha to. Verse 20, Martha, therefore... Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to him, but Mary stayed at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's the irony of that? Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. In my opinion, Jesus calls the disciples to a deeper faith, and here he calls Martha to begin faith. Point number two is this. In trials, God is glorified calling you to a deeper faith or to begin faith. Now, it is notoriously difficult to uh, pinpoint people's time where they came to Christ, and it's difficult even here, but when you come to factor in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 and 26, when you see the altar call that basically Jesus gives, do you believe this? It it makes the most sense to me that Martha at this exact moment comes to believe in Jesus as the Christ. Notice what she says again in verse 27. Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and even he who comes into the world. God uses the trial of Lazarus to deepen the disciples' faith, to begin the faith of Martha. But then notice the third outcome, and we will look at that here in verse 32. In the same way that we grow spiritually in trials, we often come to Christ in trials. We we often believe in Jesus Christ in trials. Um, One of... If, if, you, if you know my personality, if you were to 
know me, I love a really good war documentary, okay? I think I've said that before, but man, I am a war documentary nerd. It's the, it's the ones that your high school teacher showed you when she didn't really want to teach that day, and you probably got a good nap that day, okay? Those are the kind of documentaries that I love to watch. The ones on the Civil War and Vietnam War, too, I love them all. Okay. And one of the themes that you see throughout these war documentaries is that the moment these soldiers go into battle, what do they always do? (laughs) They believe, they pray to the Lord Almighty to save them and to rescue them. Even here, there's a, a couple of years ago, I did a funeral for a gentleman named Robert Orr. And I had the honor and privilege to do that and to host that funeral. And I looked at his membership card from like 1970s. And on his membership card, it had Place of Salvation. It said Saipan. What I came to find out is that he was, I believe, a World War II bomber. And he was in the Battle of Saipan. So you would imagine as he's flying over this island dropping bombs that he is probably praying to the Lord to rescue him and to preserve him. And at that moment, he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We often grow in times of difficulty, but we also begin our faith in times of difficulty. In trials, God is glorified, calling us to deeper faith, to begin faith. But then notice Mary. Notice verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Within the pericope as a whole, through these 44 verses, I believe the disciples have one lesson, Martha has one lesson, but here I believe Martha is is having her faith stretched, that she needs to understand the sovereignty of God, because Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He has been dead, not for an hour. This This is not explainable, that that he could... That he, that Lazarus could rise from the dead, there's no other way to explain it but by the very act of God. Jesus, I believe, is stretching Mary's faith to truly understand God in his sovereignty. If I could put this passage together in a nutshell, it would be this. That in trials, God is glorified, calling us, calling you to a deeper faith in God's character, to enter faith into God's salvation, or to stretch your faith into God's sovereignty. God, perhaps you're here this morning, and there's something going on in your life that you did not ask for and that you did not cause. The question I have is why? Why did the Lord place that upon your life? That is the question I want you to ask today for yourself. Why has God caused a spiritual test for a spiritual purpose? What is he trying to get you to do? Notice the conclusion of our story, verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. This is verse 38 again. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone Martha, the sister of the deceased, says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you were always you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they also, the crowds, not just Mary, Martha, and the disciples, but the crowds may believe that you sent me. Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, verifying that he was dead. Could you imagine lying in a tomb for four days with bound like that? And his face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. The lesson of John 11 was, given, was not given to Lazarus, but to Mary, Martha, the disciples, and the crowds. God's glory was revealed, leaving each of them with a choice. To either believe more or to reject him altogether. That is the choice you have today. The glory of God is revealed to you. Just look around you. Go outside. The heavens are telling of the glory of the Lord and expanses declaring the work of his hands. The glory of God is seen in nature. The glory of God is seen in the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, that we see echoed on the, these pages. The glory of God is seen through the redemption of salvation, that God has come to redeem what was broken. Amen. That Jesus has come to redeem that was broken. The glory of God is seen before you. The question that they faced is what do you do with it? Do you believe and deepen your faith if you're a Christian or do you walk away? That is the question before us. And that is the question I see here in John 11. But for whatever time I have left, I'm going to talk to you, those that are in this room. You are... One of two people. Person number one, you're walking through a trial, or person number two, you are not. That's it. There's only two classes, alright? You're either walking through a spiritual test for a spiritual purpose, or you are not. If you're walking through a trial, what should you do? Don't ignore it. Because the Lord has, uh, an interesting, I, don't know, I wouldn't say sense of humor. That probably is not the right term here. But if we don't pass the trial, guess what's coming next? It's going to come right back around, right? If you're going through something that you did not ask for, for a spiritual purpose, the worst thing you could do is run from it or to ignore it. What you should do is you go to the Lord and you say, okay, Lord, okay, you have allowed this difficulty in my life for you to be glorified. What are you teaching me? If you're in the midst of the valley midst of the trees, then go up and see, God, pray to the Lord and ask the Lord, what are you doing? So person number one, those that are walking through a trial. Person number two, those who are not. If you're on cloud nine, if you're on the mountaintop and you're having a great old time, all right, and, and you're, you're walking, right, and you're praising the Lord and you're not walking through any difficulty, then it's, instead of just relishing there, instead of just sitting there among, amongst the trees, what I would encourage you to do is find somebody that is in the valley. 
that is going through a difficult time and walk alongside them. What does it say in Galatians 6 2? Bear one another's burdens. What does it say in James chapter 5? Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. What does it say in Romans chapter 12 verse 15? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If you're walking a difficult road, go to the Lord and ask. But if you're not, then go to the Lord and ask or find someone in your life that needs encouragement. How are we serving the Lord here today? Uh, I have a favor to ask. I've um, been slowly reading through the Bible uh, in a yearly timeline, and um, I'm probably a little bit behind on that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm sure, along with many of us here this morning, okay, if you're trying to do that. Um, and I and I recently I came across the story in the Book of Exodus, and it's the story of the Exodus itself. You have the Jews, the Israelites, who have been enslaved to the nation of Egypt for 400 years, and what happens? They approach the Red Sea, and there is the Red Sea on one side, and Pharaoh and his armies on the other side. And then what does the Lord do? He sees their plight, he sees their trial, he sees the difficulty of this situation, and God parts the Red Sea, allowing the nation of Israel to cross along on dry ground to the other side. Pharaoh enters into the Red Sea, and the Lord closes the sea upon him, vanquishing him and all of his chariots, and freeing the nation of Israel from oppression. But what does the nation of Israel do on the other side? They whine and complain. <laughs> they whine and complain about the provision of God in the desert because they eat the same food every day. And they whine and complain so much that they desire to go back to Egypt in enslavement. Let's not do that. That on the other side of a trial, the Lord is waiting on the other side of the Red Sea. On the other side of a trial, let us not look back with unsatisfied desires, but Lord, let us rather see the Lord and His provision and His love for us and His desire to help us to grow and enter into faith and salvation. Very, very quickly, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He offers you the gift of salvation. That if you would believe in Him, that you would be saved. But as a consequence of faith in Jesus Christ, there is change. There has to be. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then believe in Him and you shall be saved. If you have any questions about that, feel free to see me in the hallway and I would love to answer anything you have. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and the story of Lazarus and how it, it weaves this theme of the glory of God and uh, your desire to cause us to live by faith. And we see this fabric through the, uh, this thread through the fabric of this text. And Lord, I just, uh, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whether we're the disciples that need a deeper faith, whether we're Martha that need to initiate faith, or whether that we're Mary, Lord, I pray wherever we are, Lord, that we would come to you and ask you, Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, let us not escape this room without asking that question. Lord, because when we exit this room, we will be distracted, we will want to go to lunch, and our stomachs will growl, and we will 
quickly forget what was shared in your word. Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to relish your scripture and to love it and to apply it to our lives. I thank you for this church. Um, Lord, I am amazingly privileged and honored to be the pastor of this church and the people whom I love. Thank you for everyone that is here. Thank you for those that cannot be here. I pray for protection. Thank you for your word and how it gives us life. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.